All right, well, if you want to join me and follow along with our text this morning in Romans chapter 5, it's a little bit different type of series than what we've been doing, just going through one passage each week, but I've taken some topics along this theme, and my prayer is that God will use this. He's used it in my life tremendously, just studying the last three weeks. For those of you that minister God's Word, know what that's like. Words have great power, and we know that. They can build up a person's life when you speak to them, or they can destroy. Words can cut. They can bind up. Words can unify people, and they can divide. They can hurt deeply. They can heal. Words can bring heartache, and they can bring joy. They can bring stress to your life or peace. They can shatter a destiny. Words like, you're a loser. Or they can create a destiny. You're something special. Words are powerful. But words do not have as much power as love. Love is the greatest power in the world. It changes everything. It is an overriding message of God to us through His Word. If you see from Genesis to Revelation, you find this unfolding story and expression of the love of God. It's an amazing story. And it's more than words. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. So from Romans chapter 5, and this may be a familiar passage to many of you, but I want us to look at verses 6 through 8. And you're gonna, we're going to hear about God showing his love, more than just words. Have you ever had someone say to you, those are just words? <laughs> and we use words, but sometimes people don't believe words. But this is what Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us. This morning I want to talk about. what this love does, the observations of love. And I'm going to make four of them this morning, if you want to follow, if you're taking notes. But four observations of what love does, what love shows. The first is that love, what love does is address our weakened condition. So the message that God gives in His Word, or the message of love that we find in the Scripture, addresses what we would call our, our fallen condition, our human condition, our needy condition, our, our weakness. Now, you may not feel weak today, but all of us have been described in Scripture as being weak. And this is what verse 6 says. It says, while we were still weak. Weak in what? Well, weak meaning without strength, we are powerless, we are helpless. 
If you'll turn over just one page back to chapter 3, he really describes this in verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the weakness is is seen in our sinfulness. Weakness is seen in the fact that, that we get old. And after we've been old for a while, we die. That's the weakness of humanity. Now, when it says here, all have sinned, no one does good all of the time. How does that affect me? In fact, you might even ask the question, how sinful are you? How sinful are you? Well, typically, I like to think the best of myself. Are you that way? I think, I'm not really that bad because there are always people a lot worse, right? Don't you think that way? I mean, I don't know I've done this, but I haven't killed anybody. Or if you've killed someone, I haven't done something else. I mean, you think of the worst, most deplorable thing that could possibly be done in the world, and I haven't done that. But it says all have sinned. It says Jews and Greeks, barbarians, slaves, free, religious, non-religious, heathen, pagan, criminals, upstanding citizens, everyone has sinned. So how sinful are you? How sinful am I? Well, I would say this, you're worse than you think you are. You're probably saying, thank you for that encouraging word today. That's what I came to church for. You're worse than you think you are. Because here's typically the way we think. I, I know I've done this, this, and this, and this, but I haven't done this, this, and this. And, and the, those things are like the really bad things. Have you ever picked up the paper and read about what someone did and you think, I just cannot believe that. Can you believe that? Now, we all do that. There are certain things that are beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination. But what James says, and James was a pastor in the church in Jerusalem, Here's what he says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Whoa. Now you just let that settle in for a moment. You could keep the entire, every command in the Bible. Every single one. I mean, you would be one righteous person. I mean, we probably couldn't even get close to you. And you're feeling pretty good about yourself. But what it says is, and you commit one sin, one sin, you are guilty of all of it. And that really puts us all in the same boat, doesn't it? I think in some ways we get pretty self-righteous and we think, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do this, I, I would never do that. Can you believe that? You've done it. You're guilty of it because sin has such a permeating effect, overpowering effect upon this world. So when we have committed one sin, and I doubt there's anyone that got to church this morning <laughs> without committing one sin. Either that or you don't have a very 
Um, maybe you have a different tolerance level of sin, but sin is anything that displeases God. It's not just I didn't steal anything on the way to church. I didn't use any bad words. But if you're unkind, you're unloving, displeasing to God in your thoughts, then we are guilty of all. So this is what is so amazing about, and and we think about this first point, what love does, is, is it addresses our weakened condition. And he does that by caring for us. We, we often can be guilty of despising people, kinds of people, or what people have done, and really it, it's a form of hypocrisy because we are guilty. We are sinners. And a lot of times what I find is what bothers me the most about people is what I struggle with, but I don't see it. Now, We are worse off than we think we are because we are totally sinful, all of us. So there's no no point in ranking who's the worst one in this room. We have all sinned, and if we've committed one sin, we've broken all of the law. And what is the consequence of sin? What does the Bible teach is the consequence of sin? It's death. Chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. So say, who in this room is going to die? We're all going to die. You know, Pat and I were having this conversation yesterday when people say, you know, you've got six months to live or you're, you're you know, and, and, and one guy found that out. He, someone said, how are you doing? He said, I'm dying. <laughs> That's kind of a <laughs> jolting comeback, isn't it? How are you doing today? I'm dying. But isn't that true of all of us? Now, when you get that message, it does change your perspective on a lot of things in life. But the, but the truth is, even for the, the youngest child in this room, the moment you're born, you're going to go through the process of life. And, and the consequence of sin, not just your sin, but a fallen world and, and our own sin, that death will come. And this is the beauty of the love of God. The love of God addresses our weakened condition. We are weakened that we are sinners, and we are weakened that we're going to die. And the love of God reaches out to us in our need, knowing that every person in here needs to experience the love of God because they're weak. As time goes on, we come against the reality of our weakness. The body starts to fail. We start to see the, the things going on. And so, so when we hear, for God so loved the world, in John 3.16, it meets us in our fallen condition, in our greatest need. We're dying. So that's the first way that he shows it. It addresses our weakened condition. Second, Love accomplishes our necessary redemption. In other words, God's love sent to us rescues us. You notice verse 8, what it says, but God. The most familiar verse in that passage is verse 8. It says, but God. 
shows his love. So here I am in a fallen condition, helpless, hopeless, dying, and there's no way out of it. I can't reverse that path that I'm on to die. And he comes and he rescues me. He accomplishes necessary redemption. And something incredible happens. It's so extraordinary what he does. If you look at verse 7, it says, Christ, well, verse 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. So we are sinners, ungodly, we're dying, and Jesus Christ died for us. Now it says in verse 7, For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now it's true, I might die for my wife, I'd die for my kids. I'd die for my grandkids. I'd die for some of you. <laughs> On a really good day, I'd say I'd die for my whole church family. But you know, there are some people that I would think, there's no way. There's no way. And, and you're that way too. I mean, what, if I, like, you, you picture the most wicked, vile person that's in prison right now or on the face of this earth. Think of all the worst sins, top ten worst sins, and, and that's what they've all done. Would you die for them? Let's see, this is what is so extraordinary. This is so, what it is, because you list all of the sins, all of the worst sins, in all of the world, and that's who Jesus died for. <laughs> it wasn't just for good people, or people that kept the law, or nice people, or family members, or church people. This is extraordinary. This kind of love is so unique. And he did it at just the right time. At just the right time. Now when you think of words, how, words to describe this, God sent a son to die for our sins on the cross. What words, and we, and we can kind of uh, come up with these great big theological words like redemption. Redemption means to buy back, to buy, buy you back. In other words, you were, you were enslaved by sin, and Jesus shed his blood to purchase the price. You know, his blood purchased the price that needed to be paid to redeem you, to buy you back. We use the word propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied his father by perfectly washing away the sins. We use the word justification. Justification is when, when God looks at us and declares us righteous. I mean, it's like the judge at the bench saying, you are righteous, you are clean, you are pure, you are made holy. That's justification. Salvation, delivering us from sin, rescuing us from sin. Now, those are all words, Okay. So, but the point of my message is love is more powerful than words. So that takes us to our third point. And that is love provides us a clear demonstration. Love provides for us a clear demonstration. There are great words to describe God. There are great words to describe His love. There are great words to describe the theology of it. But the greatest power is how he expressed it by what he did. 
And in verse 8, it says, God shows us. That's interesting how he phrases that. Wouldn't you say God showed us? Because when Jesus died on the cross, that was almost 2,000 years ago, right? So why doesn't he say God showed us, but it says God shows us or demonstrates? It's an active expression, an an active tense. In other words, there is a present reality to this. There is a present reality to what he did. And this is how he does it. First, the father gave his only son. Now, if you've got kids and you love those kids, you think long and hard before you give up their life. Abraham, God asked Abraham to do that with Isaac. But you hold those precious little kids and I'm thinking, there's no way. Now, would I give that life up for another good kid? Because all my grandkids are good kids, you know. So would I give up, as a, as a father or grandfather, would I give my son his life for another life? I don't care who it is. I, I don't know. I could see myself doing that. I say, that's too much. I can't, I can't do that. But not only did God give his son for religious people, he gave, he gave his only son for the vilest, most wicked person on the face of this earth, which is really just like you and me, as I said before. That is what is so amazing. So when it says, for God so loved the world, he shows it. He, show, he doesn't just say it. We can always say, hey, I love you, I love you. I love you, man, I love you, I love you too. I love you. He shows it. He shows it. God gave his only son for you. You know, we have this kind of thing where we just want justice until we realize what that looks like. (laughs) Because if we got what we deserved, it would be hell. It would be eternal separation from God. It would be eternal punishment. That's what it would be. But this love is not only demonstrated by the Father, it's demonstrated by the Son. In John 10, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, this is Jesus speaking, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Isn't that something? A God gave his only son for you, died for you. The worst of sinners. I know it's hard to see yourself that way, but we need to. He says, I do that willingly. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. How many of you have seen the new Ben-Hur movie? Anybody here? Now, if you're like me, didn't want to go see it. Because no one can beat Charlton Heston. In fact, when our son has been over in, uh, in the Middle East, he'll show that Ben-Hur movie to college students that, that are completely secularized Muslims. And it has a profound impact. And he, of course, shows the old one. But it was interesting in the new one, which I thought was 
course, it's never as good as the old, you know, but the new one is pretty good. But there's this scene where Judah Ben-Hur is going to help Jesus. You know, remember the time when Jesus is carrying the cross or beating him, beating him and, then, and then he stumbles and then they hand the cross over to Simon. And, uh, but they have this scene. It's, it's, of course, extra biblical story. But Judah Ben-Hur comes in here to give him some water and they beat him off and he starts fighting with the soldiers. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I'm doing this willingly. This is of my doing or something like that. I was trying to look up last night the exact quote, but he's, but he's basically saying, don't fight this. I'm doing this of my own accord. So he says, the world overpowering Jesus, the Romans and the Jews and the world, are they overpowering him and he can't help it? They're, they're taking him and nailing him to a cross. No, he is giving his life. For what kind of people? Murderers, rapists, child molesters all kinds of perversions, wickedness, and for you. I do this willingly. So the Father expresses His love. He shows His love. It's not just words. He shows His love to you by giving His only Son. And Jesus shows His love for you by giving His life for you. The very ones that were spitting on Him, mocking Him, come on down from the cross falsely accusing him, betraying him, deserting him, denying him. Those are the ones he died for. The ones that doubt like Thomas, the ones that deny him like Peter, the ones that betray him like Judas. The worst of the worst. Jesus lays down his life. But then there's another part of this. The Father shows his love, the Son shows his love, but I want you to see how the Holy Spirit shows his love. How does the Holy Spirit... Show his love to you. Look back at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is how the Holy Spirit shows his love to you by pouring out the love of God into your heart. It's an amazing thing. We've talked before about love. We, we use the English word in a lot of different ways. The Greeks had four words I've shared with you. Uh, storge, uh, the Greek word means a love for what is pleasant and familiar. I love this place. I love this weather. I love pizza. I love hamburgers. I love these old shoes. I, it's, what, it's what is familiar to me. Phileo is we have a brotherly love or a sisterly love, and, and what we share is the same passion for something. We, we have a connection, a relationship that's based on something else. And then eros is a love between a man and a woman. One man and one woman have a relationship. It's called eros. But this new word is agape, and the word that we, we read here is agape love. And, it, and the difference is all three of those other loves are condi- conditional. They're conditional. In other words, there have to be certain conditions to have it. And agape love is unconditional. So storge is if I like, you know, these old shoes or I like to I like this I like the weather, it's all conditioned on something that I like. You take that away, I don't have it. Phileo, for for us to have brotherly love, we have to have something in common. Take that away, we don't have it. 
Eros, there is a love of a man for a woman, a woman for a man. There's a relationship between two people. And, and so they are attracted, and there is a condition on that. But unconditional love, what it looks like, is there's nothing to attract. God loves you no matter what. It's not because you're beautiful. It's not because you're good. It's not because, you know, this is really encouraging because it's, it's not that I've got to perform up to some standard for God to love me. God loves you. He loves you like you are. And all of your filth and your sin and the wickedness, these are the people that Jesus died for. It is unconditional love. So, it's an, amazing, it's an amazing thing. It's intentional. It's proactive. It's not responsive. When, when someone loves me, I love them back. We have something in common. We're drawn to something. And even if I really work hard and I'm, I'm giving, 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 there's always in us a little expectation of something in return. Isn't there? This is completely one way. It is unconditional. It is intentional. It is completely sacrificial. You cannot have agape love without giving, 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 giving. Okay, okay. How much? Reminds me of what Peter said in Matthew 18. Giving, giving, giving. Okay, Lord, how many times do I forgive this person? Seven? You know, it's kind of like seven is like, wow, that's a lot. But then what happens when number eight comes? It shows that you never really forgave on number one because love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, keeps no record of wrongs. So if you're keeping no record of wrongs, you don't even know that it's eight. But that's the way we are. Okay, I'm going to be patient one more time, one more time. That's three, or that's five, or that's seven, that's nine. So Jesus said, no, seven times 70, which means infinitely. And that's how Jesus has loved us. That is how God has loved us. That is how the Holy Spirit has shed abroad into our hearts. He's loved us this way. Completely sacrificial. So, love addresses our fallen condition. Love accomplishes accomplishes our necessary redemption. Love provides us a clear demonstration. And finally, love brings us to a powerful conclusion. Here is a powerful conclusion. And I don't need for you to turn to this verse, but probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible is John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that that is amazing. But here's the follow-up. And this is going to be really easy for you to remember. If you put a little one in front of John 3.16, you'd have 1 John, 1 John 3.16. And that's right before Revelation. So if you're looking in the Bible, there's short, short little letters that John wrote. Here's what it says. By this, we know love. 
that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for, for others. Now, what it's saying is, if we know the love of God, we show the love of God. And it's because he loved us. There's no worse sinner in the world than you. You're a hypocrite if you think that. It's so easy to judge others. It's so easy to condemn others. The fact that God would love you and send His Son, the fact that Jesus would lay down His life for you, the fact that the Holy Spirit would pour out His love into your heart is amazing. There is nothing like it. And because He has done that for you, you have no excuse not to love other people the same way. So whenever I'm looking at an unlovely person, and you can meet a few of those along the way, right? This week, you're going to meet a lot of unlovely people, hard people, difficult people, horrible people, sinful people. Say, how can I, how can I love that person? You just turn right around and look at the cross. And above the cross, you see the love of God. You see the love of the Son towards you, the love of the Holy Spirit that has filled your heart. How can you not forgive like He forgave you? How can you not do that? Not only do you have the example that He he has shown His love, not just with words. Love is more powerful than words. But he's also given you the ability by his spirit in you to be able to turn around and to love that person. And that's how people know God's real. How do people in Boulder Valley know God's real? It's not our theology, it's not our holy lives, it's not our good behavior. People know God by seeing believers who understand love, it's, it's the supernatural effect. There's a story in Matthew 18 that, I, that follows that about with Peter. I think it's just an amazing story. But the, this man had a debt. And I'll put it in 2016 numbers. But, but he had a debt of about a million dollars. And he couldn't pay it. And so the, the guy that he owed money to said, you know what, you're gonna, I'm going to make you a slave. Take your whole family as a slave. And you're going to basically lose your lives until this is all paid off. And he throws himself at the mercy of this uh, guy who loaned him the money. And he forgives him. He says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. All your debt. It's done. A million dollars. A million dollars. So this guy who's just been forgiven goes out, finds someone who owns his him money. In today's equivalency, it would be about $30,000. That's still a lot of money, but $30,000 in a million. And the same thing goes on. He says, you need to pay me. He says, I can't pay you. And he has the guy thrown into prison. See, that's, that's like Christians who don't get it. How can you be mean and hateful and unloving and unforgiving? How can you not forgive someone when he forgave you? That's the point. How can you not love the worst of sinners, when Jesus has loved you. And see, what happens is when, when we 
when we begin to grasp this, when we love God, we love one another, we love our neighbors, we're able to love our enemies, we're able to love the vilest, filthy sinner imaginable. And then we do what He did for us. So to me, that is the the amazing story of John 3.16. Because it doesn't become real when you just quote John 3.16. It becomes real when you do for Him what He did for you. And that's not easy. But that gets us back to to what I want to really leave with you. Love is stronger than all the words we could ever speak to all the people we could ever know. Let me say that again. Love is stronger than all the words we could ever speak to all the people we could ever know. And here's our takeaway. Know His love, show His love. Know His love, show His love. You'll never be able to live out Christian life until you dwell upon, not just on an intellectual level, the love of God. You've got to taste the honey. You've got to stop and think about how much God loved you, how much Jesus loved you, how much the Holy Spirit loves you, and what He did for you. And what that should do is cause you to erupt with praise and thanksgiving to God. So thankful, so thankful for what He's done for you. That that love can be shown to others. And when when someone who doesn't deserve it just like you didn't deserve it, sees that kind of love, they know there's something going on here. There's something going on. How will they know that you're Christians? That's that in John. How are they going to know you're Christians? By the love you have for one another. My prayer for you, as we read earlier in Ephesians, that you would know the love of God in His fullness, His height, its depth, its breadth. How God has loved you and that we would be able to show His love. It's the greatest story ever told. And you need to think on it, and you need to share it. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the beauty of the expression that You have not just used words to tell us things. You have shown us Your love. God has shown us His love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never experienced receiving your love, that today might be the greatest day of their lives. Fill us with joy and thanksgiving. And every time we struggle to forgive and every time we struggle to show love to unlovely, difficult people, help us to turn around and look again at the cross. The love of God, the love of Christ, the love of the Holy Spirit expressed to us and get our minds back where they should be and our hearts back where they should be. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for showing it to us. Help us to see that your love is stronger than anything else in the world, stronger than circumstances, stronger than words. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.